Today's episode is brought to you by Cashmerat. Did you know that the average woman wears a size 16 and a DD bra, but that most sewing patterns stop at a 14 and are drafted for a B cup? That's why Jenny Rushmore launched Cashmerat Patterns, the first sewing patterns designed for curves. Cashmerat patterns come in size 12 through 28 and cup sizes from C through H. And there are a range of modern patterns from the ultimate wrap dress to a button-down shirt that doesn't gape at the bust. Use code WALSHINAPS, that's all caps, WALSHINAPS, at shop.cashmeret.com to get 20% off your purchase before July 1st, 2017. Thank you so much, Cashmeret. And now, here's the show. Welcome to episode 98 of the Walshy Naps podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. Today, we're talking about running a fabric company with my guests, Kathy Miller and Michael Steiner. Kathy and Michael are the co-founders of Michael Miller Fabrics. Kathy Miller and Michael Steiner, welcome. Hi there. Hi, thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you so much for coming on the show. So I want to talk a little bit about your respective careers before you came together to co-found Michael Miller. So Michael, we're going to start with you, if that's okay. And I know that you were in sales prior to to doing this. You were um, a salesman, a sales manager. Is that right? Yes. Yes, that's correct. Um, I fell into the industry after college with with a psychology and an American literature degree. I fell into the industry as a sales assistant to start the career and moved quickly into sales and then pretty quickly into sales management. And for the next 10 years, stayed that course and kind of was over time watched, you know, with the, with the entire industry. And that, that was how I entered. Okay. And what kinds of companies were you working in sales for? Well, I was, I, I guess I would be someone you would call loyal because I worked for one company. And at the time, this particular company had not started this particular division that I'll mention, but midway through that 10 years, Timeless Treasures opened. And so I migrated from the mother company, High Fashion Fabrics, to the Timeless Treasures division, which is where I spent most of the last five years of my time. Okay, so that was a company that was a fabric company that then branched out into the quilting industry through Timeless Treasures, which is a quilting fabric division. Exactly. And that was in the late 90s or the mid 90s, which was when quilting was just becoming something that people were spending money on again. Yes, exactly. Okay, great. And you knew a lot about the sales side of that business. So not sort of the art side necessarily, but the sales piece of how that was working. Yeah. And more specifically, I was involved with companies that manufactured consumer products. So for me, even though they had started that division, for me, it was still pre-quilting phase. Even though I was involved, I was working with the same kind of product category, the same designs, collections on cotton but I was selling them to companies, large companies that manufactured consumer products across a range of many products. I see. So this was bedding, that kind of thing? It was 
let's see, kitchen textiles, ribbon, hair accessories, children's clothing, and women's accessories too. Okay. That, I think that's interesting to think through, like the way that fabric companies can function and the different purposes that they can serve. Because I think in coming from it as a quilter, you might think of a fabric company in a certain way, but actually there's a sort of a much broader kind of company out there, which is where you came from. Mm-hmm. And Kathy, you kind of came at this from the art side. You spent a long period of time working as an artist and a stylist. Tell us a little bit about your experience prior to founding Michael Miller. Right. I um, I started back before I was at all involved in the quilting side of things and worked in a lot of the garment side, women's sportswear, some dress, a lot of custom stuff for, you know, very customized to coordinate sportswear. And you'd go in and work on color and print solids, a lot of that coordination. So then when the opportunity came along for the over-the-counter, which is what we call the -the over-the-counter fabric business, that was that was kind of like home for me because I grew up sewing a lot of clothes and stuff. So that was, that was great. And then quilting, I had been around in my family and stuff, but never, never really concentrating on frankly cottons. So I'm jumping ahead, but when I came into the quilting side of things, it was like, it was pretty much like meeting my kindred spirits that, you know, in the garment side, you would be the print designer or the fabric designer working with the clothing designers. And that was great. But usually you wouldn't be brought into the picture until a lot of negotiating on price had been done beforehand. And then they would hand it over to the designers. This was in the quilting world. It's like the prints and the color comes first. And and price, you know, if, if somebody is a quilter, sewer, like that's what drives it. And I was like, this is heaven. (laughs) I see. Right. Because budget wasn't the determining factor regarding the way that the fabric was going to look and feel, you know, in quilting that's already sort of predetermined. And so you can kind of go crazy and, (laughs) and make things the way that you really want them to look. Yeah. You finally, you know, as a designer, you finally are dealing with your kindred spirits mm-hmm. though. So it's like, yeah, it's wonderful. <laughs> okay, great. And and you were at the same company that Michael was at and that's where you met. Correct. Okay. And it's important, I think, just to clarify for people that you're not married to one another. <laughs> we're all, we're still surprised when that comes up. <laughs> no, we're married separately to other people and we coincidentally both married other people around the same time that we started Michael Miller. Right. And Michael Miller is a combination of the two of your names. Last names, right. Right. (laughs) Well, his first name, my last name. Right, Right, exactly. Okay. Just to clarify for people who are not exactly sure how this came about. So, okay. So you worked together and at some point you decided you could strike out on your own. And I'd love to hear a little bit about that seed of that idea and what you initially envisioned doing together, because I'm sure that that vision changed and shifted when you actually started doing it. But what was the spark? I think for me, it was an entrepreneurial spark. So it was really taking control of my life at the time. 
and making this effort in an area that I enjoyed being in and that I had knowledge of and evolving as an entrepreneur in this area. So that was for me the impetus for, you know, having the desire to set out. Mm -hmm. And so for Uh, you, it was like an entrepreneurial itch um, of having sort of control, it sounds like, and owning your own company. And for you, Kathy, was that the same feeling? A slight bit, uh, because when uh, I just said that Michael and I separately got married to different people, not each other. But right before that, I was coming into this. I was a single mom, two kids and a son and daughter and a daughter that was about three years away from college. And she was very both my kids are very motivated. And I was very determined to be able to afford whatever school she could get into. And I knew I had, you know, it was the thing of like, well, if I'm going to start something, it's either now or never because then she'll be in college and I can't take a risk. You know, I was like, okay, this is it. So I've always worked better with a deadline. (laughs) (laughs) Don't we all? Yeah, absolutely. So was your intention then, since you did really enjoy the quilting cotton side of the fabric business, was that the intention to capitalize on that, to create a quilting fabric business? Well, I'm going to speak for both of us a little bit. You know, we both had a varied background of not just quilting. In fact, a lot of it in apparel and other businesses. So we could balance out those two worlds. In the company now, we have a section, and Michael will speak to it, that goes to small manufacturers and you can, and custom artwork, custom production. So we could manage, say, a chain business, chain store business, where you could, to get started, where you would have, say, a big order and we would be able to manage those direct orders while building up our design inventory and our line to get ready for to have that spread of choices. Yeah. So Abby, I would add, I would say yes to your question about setting out to be involved in quilting and crafting in the space. But I would add that it was more dynamic than that because of where Kathy and I came from individually and our collective experience. So as I mentioned before, I had experience working with companies that manufactured consumer products and I neglected to mention medical uniforms, which and scrubs, which was an important component at that time of business. And Kathy's experience was in you know, product development and more specifically for quilting and crafting. So when we combined our collective skills and were supported with a small business administration loan, which was, was critical to getting started, we, and I'll try to be brief, we built the business incrementally in a short time by running programs, developing programs with companies, large companies that made consumer products. We were introduced in chains at that time who we developed private label product for. And that business came and went to a certain extent. And what that enabled us to do was to generate cash flow so that we could slowly build inventory, establish a sales force, and start to reach out to the quilting and crafting world, ultimately on a global basis. I see, because you were really breaking in at the moment. I mean, the timing was good, right? This was 1999 and 
the timing was good in that this was really a time when I feel like quilting was taking off as far as quilt shops opening, people writing more books about quilting, quilting conferences happening, people really getting into quilting as a as a hobby. But yet it was also still somewhat new. And so it sounds as though you focused on some of the consumer goods pieces of this in order to develop some cash flow, as you said, and get things sort of going. And then that allowed you some financial freedom to break into what was then like a burgeoning, but still fairly young industry. Exactly. And we're eternal optimists. So we'll put that out there. So no matter, no matter what's going on, we're looking at the history of textiles and Yes, and noticing crafting burgeoning and, and evolving at a rapid pace at that moment. But ironically, the time we started the company, it also happened to be the dot-com craze. Right. So we would ask friends to invest and we would offer 15%. That, that sounds insane today. We would offer 15%, but back then it sounded insane because it didn't sound like much. <laughs> and and we, in addition, we must have been seen as as uh, a bit more risk than, than people were willing to take on. So nothing really came our way. So it's it's just a little ironic that things were great in the in in quilting and crafting, but they were doing you know so much better in other parts of the economy that we had trouble getting funding. Right. Yeah. And so let's talk about how you did fund this business in the beginning. So you left your jobs and you came together. You were working from Michael's apartment in Manhattan to to get this new business going. And it sounds like not taking on tons of new investors. So and so you did get this small business loan. And how else did you finance things in the beginning? Because I think that that's a piece that people really wonder about, like, how do you start something if you don't have any money to invest, you know? So how did you pull it all to, together to make it happen financially? Yeah, it's a little, it's a little, little of the old, you know, shoestring and cheap cook bottle washer story. Um, from our experience in business, we did happen to own our own homes and that counted for quite a bit. <laughs> uh, we both happened to have insurance policies and so our homes and insurance policies were collateralized by the bank to support the, the Small Business Administration loan. So that was that piece. Fortunately, I just bought my first apartment two years prior to starting our business. So we did have a rent-free environment. And it was just large enough for us to work in the apartment with my current wife, who was my fiance at the time, and, and two early employees. And we, we did use the hallway of the building quite a bit as well in the lobby of the building as a reception as, desk. As, a, as our reception desk. <laughs> so. And so how long, how long was this setup sustainable? It's very clear in my mind. It, it was a, it was a 90 hour a week, you know, scenario. And it went on for 18 months before wow. we were able to get our first commercial space. Okay. And were you paying yourselves during that time or was it really like everything that came in went right back into the business? Everything went back. We did the credit card thing, so we we maxed out what we could on the credit cards. Um, you know, full disclosure: each of my parents gave us a I guess a fifty thousand and a seventy five thousand dollar loan, respectively, but with interest. And so that needs to be included with the small business administration loan. And then we used credit cards, and that was it. And we just were fortunate to be able to start to pay back those loans and generate some level of income within about uh, nine months. 
All right. That's really helpful to people to hear. And I think today there probably would have been temptation to do a Kickstarter or something like that. But back in those days, that wasn't the way things worked. And I think it's helpful. So then you move, obviously, you're not still in Michael's apartment. So I so you moved out no. um, and you're still based in Manhattan though. Yes, we're still based in Manhattan. Um, we moved and then we moved again in a very short time, 18 months, to the space that we're currently in for the last 15 years. And Kathy originally was living in Connecticut and commuting to Manhattan. About a decade ago or so, she moved to California. And as the listeners may know or not know, currently resides in Sonoma, beautiful Sonoma, California, with two members of our staff. But the rest of the organization has always been here with me in Manhattan. I see. Okay. And is it hard working remotely like that? You're kind of bi-coastal. I found that I like being bi-coastal, frankly. (laughs) It's like I've kind of got the best of both worlds. I don't think I could go without having the connection to New York besides our group here and getting together. And we're constantly in contact. It's the, the energy level in Manhattan is very different than the energy in California, which is very, what's the word, nourishing, I guess, in a way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's very and, and very stimulating in Manhattan and just having both of those. And I've, I've told people before that the one thing that I didn't think I would miss giving up from the East Coast was everybody has pretty much a long commute in Manhattan unless they live around the corner. But that train commute time of like an hour and a half, if you can do it on a train, I thought, well, okay, so I'm, when I'm in California, then I don't have that transition time between work and the studio. You know, it's like a five minute walk back and forth. But the part that was so wonderful that I didn't appreciate at the time is like just sitting and having that transition between work and office. And now I get to do that in a grand style on a plane. (laughs) (laughs) Right. You know, most of us that go back and forth is like, especially if you're visual, like you're getting on board with magazines and so much stuff that you haven't had time to read or peruse. It's like, it's recharging in itself. Yeah, I can totally see that. I want to take a moment now to hear from our sponsor, Jenny Rushmore at Cashmere Patterns. I'm Jenny Rushmore of Cashmere Patterns. And how did you decide to launch a pattern line? I learned to sew when I was about 30. And initially I had that um, kind of whoosh of excitement that everyone has when they realize, oh, I can make things that fit me rather than trying to find something in a store. But then I had, unfortunately, a realization that a lot of sewing patterns didn't fit me either. Um, I'm about a size 14, which is the size of the average American woman, but most sewing patterns either didn't go up to my size or I was the biggest size. And then I also learned that the most sewing patterns are designed for a B cup chest. The average American woman is a double D, I'm an H, so I was constantly having to adjust patterns. And then one day I thought, well, I am average, so why are there not more patterns for people like me? And that was really the genesis behind Cashmere Patterns. I wanted to design sewing patterns that were actually designed for curvy women in an inclusive size range and in cup sizes that would go all the way up to the H cup that I have. And how are your patterns developed? 
So I look for inspiration really in the online sewing community, the fashion communities and people I see on the street. And I particularly think about what looks really good on curvy women and also what are the challenges of being curvy. So for instance, wrap dresses are a classic invented by Dan von Furstenberg that look absolutely awesome if you have a curvy figure. So that was my first pattern, the Appleton wrap dress. But then there's also the issue that trying to get a button-down shirt to fit you if you have a large chest is really, really difficult. So the Harrison shirt is actually one of our best-selling patterns now, which is designed in a way that you actually can't make it gape, even if you try. So I take my inspiration and then I work with a professional pattern maker. We did three blocks straight from scratch based on curvy bodies to make sure that our patterns would fit really well. We develop, test, and then we launch. Awesome. And what would you say is your favorite one? The Appleton wrap dress. And now I have a wardrobe full of Appletons that don't gape at the neckline. I don't have to wear a camisole and I feel really fantastic wearing them. Awesome. And if people want to check them out, where should they go? You should go to shop.cashmorette.com. Awesome. Thank you so much, Jenny. Thank you. Thank you so much, Cashmorette Patterns. And now back to my conversation with Kathy and Michael. So how many people uh, work full-time at Michael Miller now? Five. Okay. And then you have a range of licensed artists and freelancers? Yes. Yes. And a couple, what I would call properties that exist that we develop internally. Okay. What does that mean? So for example, um, so we work with licensed artists, like you had said. Um, We also work with a property called Flower Fairies, which was created by Cicely and Mary Barker 100 years ago. So I just segregate that as it's not, I guess it is studio work because we're developing the work, but it's also a licensing arrangement with creative product that is not being readily developed by a living artist. I see. So these are old designs that you're bringing new life to? Exactly. I see. Okay. That's interesting because I I know um, there are other fiber companies that own fabric archives, for example, that have, you know, bought them or or sort of inherited (laughs) fabric archives that they're then going into and pulling from and creating new prints from. And so that's sort of another way that fabric gets generated. That's a little bit different. Archival work that's basically copyright free. There's a lot of studios and archives to pull from for that. What Michael's talking about is past properties that are owned and you're paying a license fee. So I see. We had also done something way back uh, with the Dick and Jane readers that used to be in schools in the 50s and 60s. And that was a whole licensing arrangement. Okay. And so how would you describe Michael Miller's sort of fabric? Like, how would you describe the look? There are some fabric companies you would say, well, they're very traditional, just overall, they're a traditional kind of company. So what would you say overall is the look of Michael Miller fabric? I think it's, it's evolving a bit. Uh, In the beginning, it would be mainly differentiated with a sense of humor, quirky, happy. Uh, A lot of that was, you know, taking retro research stuff, say whether it would be from paper or you know, like old wrapping paper or wherever the motif came from, and then developing it from there. It was definitely an attitude kind of thing. It had to get a reaction from the customer. Either you had to get an ooh-ah, that's beautiful, you know, beautiful 
floral or whatever, very classic, or it had to be whimsical, but it was definitely something that, you know, touched you in a way. I had to get an ooh, ah, or a laugh. Yeah, I, I think building on what Kathy's saying, different consumers, different customers looked to Michael Miller for different design signatures. So like Kathy mentioned, early on, we developed a face that represented retro designs from the 40s and the 50s, more specifically, that we were actually still running 16 years later, 17 years later. And so we have a consumer contingency that still appreciates that work and looks to us to continue developing that work. There are other, other signatures. We had a phase where we did a lot of very, very beautiful landscapes. So beautiful, they could have been framed in museums. <laughs> and there are folks that appreciated that work and still look to us and request that we continue with that style. We have a juvenile face in the market. Uh, we have beautiful florals. So it's, I would say it's multifaceted. Traditional's probably the one word I wouldn't use to describe where we've been and, and where we're currently going. Okay. And so where are you currently going? So what is hot now? I can see how you know, between, let's say, 2000 and 2017, you know, the taste in the market has changed. And and obviously, there's some customers for whom that's not true. They originally saw this Michael Miller print way back when, and they still love it, and you're still creating it for that market. But you do have to evolve as the sort of overall aesthetic evolves in order to stay relevant. So what are you thinking about right now when it comes to what's good, what's hot, what's selling in fabric? Well, it's interesting I say that because I think we're in we're looking at right now another change period in the market. I think at the moment, what has been new for quite a while is probably in need of uh, redirect a little bit or they're, they're ready for a new twist. It doesn't have to be radically different, but a newer take. I think where, you know, because we're from my seat, I'm looking at the designs that are out there in the market and what I'm hearing from studios that we buy from, from all kinds of sources, it, that it's it's hard right now. We see it's hard in retail, not just retail and buying fabric, but retail and buying clothes. There is an overall sameness. And at the same time, there's on a consumer side, it's kind of like, okay, you know, if you're really looking at renditions of the same look, then it's time for an adjustment. And it's the big question is, you know, from a side like ours, from a side like whoever, who's going to step up, take the gamble, put it out there, and then it's different, but different in a way that people want to buy. That's the big question. I'm not sure if any of us have the answer without it being a certain amount of risk to put it out there. And that's, you know, that is what it is today. And we're experimenting with different things. We're having a lot of internal talk and, you know, everybody's got different ideas and it's that variety of ideas and input that has been our strength in the past. And, you know, we're willing to experiment. That doesn't really answer you. No, it does answer my question. I think that, um, I think that that's encouraging actually for people to hear that there is room to think completely differently and to, come up with something that doesn't look like anything people have seen before. So, you know, I, I think that's encouraging for, especially for people who might be aspiring to design fabric, 
you know, that there is perhaps the bravery there to accept something new and to try something new. And listening to all, you know, not just our world of quilting and fabric, but out there and the rest of the world in New York here and talking to people that do uh, store windows for, you know, name any high end store. And one of the thing in their windows was they, you know, this group that is getting their sets done or, you know, fabricated and they're there at the factory. I was like, Oh my God, that's almost the same as what we're doing. Mm. And what they decided as a group, especially when your group of designers are the same, uh, let's, let's call it uh, age group. You're going online for your inspiration. And if you're all going to the same sources, yes, there's going to be a sameness. So they just made a pact as a design group to back away from the computer no more Pinterest, no more whatever the favorite sites were, like back away because you're going to look like a fool. Mm -hmm. And so maybe go to the library and dig back in history or just become inspired by something that isn't so repetitive and isn't so like infiltrating all of our aesthetic constantly online. Mm -hmm. And I think that's that's refreshing for everybody to hear. Yeah. And I think we all individually, what I've noticed with, uh, especially working with women who are buying a lot of this, not all, but yeah, everybody has an internal color palette. That is what they like. Usually from what I've seen, it tends to go along with your hair color, skin color. You naturally choose what looks good on you and just play to that. You know, you'll be an individual in that regard. Mm-hmm. by your own personal choices and go with that. Yeah. I think going with your gut and your intuition is a really good advice. And I think one of the things that Michael Miller has done well to differentiate the product is working on sort of what I would call like a luxury product. So something that's going to stand out in the marketplace whether it's because of the color. And I know that you've got a black that's a blacker black than other blacks, um, for example, or whether it's the hand of the fabric and how it feels that's going to be softer, more drapey, more luxurious than the other you know, solids that are out there. So I wondered if you could talk a little bit about your thinking in creating something that's more luxury. I'm not sure if luxury is the right word, but that stands out in that way as being different. Well, you know, uh, the core of that is we stepped into a market that was fully developed and a lot of great people and companies in it that have done fabulous jobs at what they do. So coming out with solid fabric as a company, solid versus all the big players that are doing a fantastic job, the only way to differentiate ourselves, number one, is the base cloth. And the combination of going, I've spent a lot of time in my career, um, Asia at factories and mills and weaving companies. So go through and see you know, what they're working in other industries, not just quilting develop it where it would be something that you could quilt with as well as actually make apparel and want to wear. Cause we had that experience at quilt markets. We'd have garments, you know, made out of our fabric. And I was like, ah, I need to get this thing off my neck by the end of the day. <laughs> right. Cause quilting cotton generally doesn't really 
feel great or even really look great as a dress or as a blouse. Right. So something that could do double duty in both worlds. And then color, which is an area I love. So just expanding on color in general and following trends. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I just think that that's something that another way to, to differentiate oneself and to stand out and to have a product that people seek out, you know, when they're choosing, create something that's a little bit more luxury or a little bit different than what, what everybody else is already making. And I, I do want to talk about Quilt Market, which you just mentioned. So Quilt Market is the industry trade show. And, you know, it's sort of a must go for big companies, especially for a fabric company like Michael Miller. And so I'm sure you've been going to Quilt Market since 1999. Is that right? Or, or at least 2000? Um. <laughs> we should know this. I think it was around two, might've been 2000. It was, yeah, it, it, it was probably spring market of 2000. We started in February of 99. Fall market. Our first one was in Houston, obviously for fall. Okay. And as I, you know, when we were talking about getting our feet on the ground, we were doing, we had to build up enough business and develop the prints and order to have them ready for quilt market. So that took us till fall quilt okay. market. Yeah. And what correct. was that? <laughs> what was that first? Fall of 99. <laughs> Got it. Okay. So what was that first, um, you know, booth like, you know, cause I think Michael Miller, you, you guys have really nice booths at market. I mean, they make a splash. So, but, but back in the day, you know, quilt markets changed a lot. Not that I was there back then, but from looking at old pictures and, Hearing about it from people, it's changed quite a bit in the last 17 years, let's say. So what was it like that first time around? Well, I'll back up a little bit because this kind of goes back to, uh, you were talking about our black fabric. Yes. I Okay, so at the time, it was considered more dramatic to have black drapes walls for your booth. So I went to my local fabric store and bought a few bolts of solid black fabric and I'm sewing it out in the backyard under this bright sun. And I'm noticing that everything has kind of a different shade in the light. It goes kind of brown or nothing was consistent. So that bugged me for many years. And eventually when we, you know, it's like, you know, saw a need in the market, I was like, okay, I'm at the mills and I'm realizing that what they do on a print run is the leftover dye stuff gets dumped into a large barrel and saved. Nothing's really wasted. And this mix of all these different dyes are just going into this. And then what they do when it's black fabric, at least a lot of times, is they would use that mush of stuff, add a little bit of jet black dye stuff, which is incredibly expensive. So a little bit of that into the rest of this, and you get what seems to be black fabric. So then my research was find somebody that I want 100% jet black, which when we did that, it was an uphill battle to say, this is worth the money. Obviously it's gonna be more expensive than what the competitors are. And the only way you can really judge a truly black fabric is to put it right next to another market one. Mm-hmm. And it was, it was, you know, first you have to convince your own salespeople that this isn't about price. And then you have to have it in the store. And what I found out was that on the store side, there was like, actually, we have a range of blacks. 
and that depending on what you need as a quilter or what you want to pay for, maybe it's a budget thing, maybe it's not, but it finds, it finds a home eventually. And it did. Right. And again, that's a way of differentiating because yes, it's more expensive, but you know, quilting is something where it's a very specialty product and that those people who really get into quilting, they do want the best stuff, you know, which is why they're shopping, you know, at a, a local quilt shop, for example, and buying premium fabrics versus shopping mm-hmm. at a large chain store where those premium fabrics might not be available. So, you know, it, it does make sense as a, as, as a product to have something that's made with this jet black, even though it is more expensive. So getting back to quilt market, I can imagine these booths with these um, black drapes, uh, which is somewhat different from booths today. Very different. Yeah. Well, our first quilt market was our, we were in our landscape phase. It was just evolving. So we had beautiful landscapes, but I believe we had a, um, was the theme Provence? Yeah, it was. uh, That was the theme of that particular quilt market. So there was a beautiful focus print that was a farm scene with beautiful rolling hills and different things you'd find on the farm, growing on the farm as coordinate designs. And we only had two booths. We had two little booths. Mm-hmm. And Kathy and I went in with uh, Camilla, my wife, and we looked around and we see the food court and we see the bathrooms and we said, oh, good, we'll get some traffic. And what I didn't know too clearly up until that point was how well-known a quantity Kathy was in the quilting world. I knew I wasn't well-known. And when the show began, it was kind of like a mini little, a little micro Beatles experience. And we got rushed. I have to <laughs> and inter- it was a happy I surprise. Inter- I have to interject here. I, that's not all on Kathy's background. No, that was during setup. I was there at the booth and Pepper Corey was walking around. She had a little little notepad with her and she walked up and was like, oh, who are you guys? What are you doing? And I was very talkative. So I proceeded to show her the entire line and tell her who we are and what we're doing and we're setting up this booth, blah, blah, blah. Well, what I didn't know was she was giving a schoolhouse presentation the next day about trends and market. And I found out as our booth got literally rushed as soon as they opened up the doors. And in talking to somebody, this woman said, oh, well, we were at Pepper Corey's schoolhouse. And she said, we must come see you. I was like, oh, my gosh. <laughs> Thank you. Right. Well, that's the power of relationships, though. I mean, you were clearly really excited, um, you know, and I'm sure your own enthusiasm came through. But, you know, you talked to to somebody who had clout and had, you know, whose word counted and showed her all around. And and she was excited for you and mentioned it. You know, that was wonderful, a wonderful thing to do. Yes, it was great. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> and so so now when you go to Quilt Market, you don't just have two booths. How many booths do you have? Oh, boy. <laughs> I, think, I, I mean, I, we <laughs> today in our, our peak, which was maybe six years ago or so, but maybe we were up to 16 or I think so. yeah. 16 or 18 in total. Okay. And that was a few ba- a few years back. So you had 16 or 18 booths in total, which is massively impressive. <laughs> and so now, though, it sounds like maybe it's pared down a little bit. Absolutely. And the paring down has been a, a, a market-to-market kind of 
decline in the number of booths that we're taking, which really just simply reflects the slow decline in the number of customers that attend the show. Kind of rel- pretty, pretty relative. Yeah. Well, let's talk about that a little bit. So trade shows are in flux. I mean, many things are in flux. Retail's in flux, as Kathy mentioned earlier. But trade shows are affected by that. You know, five or six years ago, so let's put that at 2010, 11, somewhere in there, you know, maybe was a heyday. But now it sounds like you're writing less orders. I mean, is that the reality? Like it's just less of an order writing show than it once was. No question about it. And it sounds, I mean, from talking to other people, it seems like there's still quite a bit of international orders being written at Quilt Market. There's still that. Yes. It's sustained better. It's fared better than the independent market in the United States. But even there, our customers, our international distributors have recently started to make choices between which of the two markets that they'll attend during the year. So that dynamic's a little bit new. Okay, so is it that they're buying less, both inside the United States and outside the United States? Is it that they're buying less, or is it just that they're not coming to the show? I think it's it's more the latter. I think it's that they're not coming to the show for different reasons. Just technology in general is a is a is a platform in itself that's supporting commerce and definitely replacing part of what quote market historically brought to not not just the quilting industry, but I think to many industries. There is certainly a, I'll say the word budget, just because I can't think of a better word, but there's, a, let's say, a budget component that's playing as well. And companies, I think, are choosing to be more selective about how they use the money that they allocate for purchasing and for traveling. So I think it's a, it's a combination. And I think that from my perspective as a consumer and as somebody who's in the industry, just on, on a, as a designer, but is not, you know, a fabric company, obviously, and doesn't have the inside information about what that looks like. But just from my sort of out, outside perspective, it seems like um, there is still really a, a purpose of going, though. Like, in other words, that's not going to go away. First, because of those in-person relationships and connections. I mean, even back from the day of meeting Pepper Corey, um, those kinds of interactions still happen and happen in person at a show like Quilt Market or at other shows that you're going to. I know you go to other shows as well, but also maybe now because of technology, right? So what happens is we see the gorgeous Michael Miller booth on Instagram by searching the, you know, Quilt Market 2017 hashtag and then and live video and all the all the rest. And as consumers, we get excited about the new lines, start asking for them, demanding them, that sort of thing. And so the show now, what was once seen by the industry is now seen by everyone, industry and consumers alike. It's definitely evolved into more of a marketing purpose. Like you just, you know, to your to your point and also to your point. And Kathy, you know, can speak even better to this. The collaborative piece that you mentioned shouldn't be replaced by technology. The face-to-face part shouldn't be replaced. And the marketing piece as well, you know, because the way commerce occurs at all levels, wholesale and retail has changed so dramatically in the last seven to 10 years. Um, yes, there's there's been a decline 
what I would hope is, it sounds like you would hope that quilt market uh, certainly does not become extinct because it plays an important part in our industry. It's just that um, one of the key parts that it used to play, which was sales over the course of a three-day period, is, is not as important as it used to be, but other parts are still very important. Right. And so without that, so with that link, that piece, the sales piece, which is frankly very motivating for a company to spend the money to create, the, to buy 16 booths, to fly all of the staff out, to do all the preparation, et cetera, to know that you would make those sales, right? Like that's the, that's the carrot at the end. So without the carrot, there needs to be a different carrot. <laughs> um, and, 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 you know, a piece of that is Instagram, but, uh, but is that enough? And sort of just trying to think creatively, I just feel like the show perhaps to a degree, at least is in need of some reinvention. I would agree. And I, as you and Mike were talking, I, I was thinking about, okay, the thing about coming to the show is the serendipity of who you meet and what you see. And, what you learn while you're there and getting out of your own backyard. You know, I was, I was thinking, reflecting back in the old days, it used to be that fabric designers and clothing designers, part of the perk of what we would do in working for a company, this is before the closing part came in for me, uh, was you would work your way up the ladder. And part of your job was you would go to trend shows design shows in say Paris or London, mainly Paris. And the wonderful part of that was not the designs that you bought from say the same studios that would come to the U S and see it. It was individual designers. You're walking the streets of Paris and each designer as you're walking and seeing stuff, you're absorbing things through your lens, your interpretation, which is totally separate from designs that are put in front of you. You each have a separate thing. So everybody comes back with, a, with, you know, a vibrancy to what you're designing and putting out there. So at quote market, I agree with you absolutely in the experience at markets in general. They need to have more to offer than just vendors that showing the same line that they're going to be showing, you know, by your rep coming there. So if you're just going there to see the stuff, it's probably going to come to your store and show you that isn't enough. But if you see it in a way that it's how it's used and, you know, the intended purpose or whatever you want to call it, something that's inspirational, as well as the schoolhouses that are there and talking to designers and the serendipity back to that of walking up and down the booths, there's a good chance you're going to see something that you didn't know you were interested in. And that's, that's where the magic comes when you see something that you hadn't intended that you didn't search out that you stumbled upon. Right. 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 That's a great point. And, and let's talk just a little bit, if we could, about the future of fabric. I think, um, I think digital printing is interesting and I wondered what your take is on that. I mean, I know that right now, and you talked about traveling to the to the mills that are in Asia. Quilting cotton is printed in Asia, and that's the reality of the way it's done. And I think that there is some potential promise with 
digital printing. It still needs to be perhaps refined further. But I, I wondered what your thoughts are on it. Are you experimenting with it? Do you have future plans for it? Or are, how are you feeling about digital? It's inevitable. It, it's inevitable for a lot of reasons, for environmental, for just about everything. It has it has to happen and it will happen. Right now, it's everybody's experimenting. Everybody's trying. Right now, it's price issue. Uh, and it's it's mainly a price issue. The good thing is your minimums can be, you know, you don't have to meet a 3,000-yard minimum on something, which is harder and harder for people to sell. That part's inevitable. The high bar is it's expensive in every way. The, the equipment, the updates, you know, it's like, how many times do you update your computer? Well, put that in a grand scale. It's not like you can just set up a machine and you're set for a few years. You're totally in competition with others. So it's still it's still developing. It will it will happen, and it's in the process now. And I wonder how you feel. I mean, it's impossible to predict, but this idea that there can be smaller minimums or really no minimum. I mean, when you're printing a a digital uh, fat quarter, it can simply just be that fat quarter of that design and spoon flour comes to mind there. So, you know, if, if that is going to be the case down the road, everything's going to change. Yeah, it, it's interesting from many perspectives. And when you think about the fact that there have not really been any advancements in printing technology on a mass scale in at least 30 or 40 years, and now all of a sudden, and it's not really all of a sudden, but in our industry, the conversation makes it seem like it's all of a sudden, because like you said, Bloomflower's been doing this for close to a decade at the consumer level. So now companies like Michael Miller have either set out to begin producing designs or reproducing images. They can only be achieved with digital production. And you know, where, and where is it going to go? And the low minimums is a contemplation. I suspect that over time there will be more product coming to market because of the lower financial bar that companies have to get over to bring the designs and collections to market. I don't think that everybody uh, everybody's going to turn into a designer all of a sudden and replace what we do, what we bring to the market. I believe that's still that's a human quality and that's still specialized. But as far as the technical advancement of you know, digital printing, yes, I think more product is going to come to the market. More choices are going to be available to people. And maybe without the inventory exposure, companies might be able to either enter the market where they might not have been able to prior or they'll be able to sustain themselves in the market where they might have been unhealthy. Right. Because there's less risk because you're not investing in such huge runs. Um, And also, I kind of think about the craft beer industry where, you know, a company like Sam Adams, for example, is using contract breweries all over the country, right, to brew their beer. So if you have digital printers, and I've been to the Spoonflower headquarters and seen their massive 24-hour digital printers, of which they have several, 
And if you own that equipment, I could see a contract situation happening there where, you know, they print for multiple companies. And um, anyway, it, it's quite interesting to think through what what happens in the future. But I do agree with you that that specialized artistry and eye and aesthetic um, is still something that people you know, need. And I'm certainly not about to become a fabric designer. So, um, so you know, and there's that. Um, <laughs> uh, and, and then my last question before we, we're going to get to your recommendations in just a moment is about selling direct to consumer. And I know this is sort of a controversial topic, and um, but, but I just wanted to hear your sort of off the cuff thoughts about it, because, you know, I, I, the quilt shops are sort of were, I mean, and, and maybe still are the kind of the center of the industry. Things have shifted some quilt shops. Many are closing, some are thriving, but many are closing. You hear about them closing quite often. Um, and there's online shops and, you know, things have changed a little bit. And so would you ever consider selling direct to consumer? Or is that just a piece of the industry you just do not want to get into? The, the conversation has occurred. We are not interested in selling this to the consumer. The yes, like you said, the, the internet has changed things a little bit. <laughs> and the industry has changed. And we did we did have conversations about that internally. Uh, we we've determined that that is not a course that we are interested in taking. Um, mm-hmm. For, for different reasons. Um, we, you know, technically you can spend money and you can build a platform and try to make it occur. We couldn't figure out, there's no way to do that without, without hurting the customers that we have. Uh, right. And it's just not a path we want to go down. Mm-hmm. And I think, I think even just hearing though, that, that it's something people are thinking about, you know, and even if you've sort of rejected that idea, the fact that it's a conversation is it maybe a new thing. You know, I, I don't know whether that was even a conversation back when Michael Miller was founded. You know, should we sell direct to consumer? I can't imagine that was part was what even came up. Not even remotely. Not even in a waking dream or nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> right. And it, and selling direct to consumer can be somewhat of a nightmare, by the way. But um, <laughs> but uh, I mean, it's, it can have its positives, but it certainly comes with quite a few challenges as well. And right. So it wasn't part of the conversation in 1999. And it, and it, it is, and at least in some way, it has been conversed about. <laughs> Here we are in 2017, even if it's been rejected permanently or for now, either way. So I think that that in and of itself says yeah. something. Yes, yes. I was going to add these stores bring value that the internet, and this isn't the sole reason that we're not interested in in, in selling to the consumer, but the stores bring value that can never ever be replaced by the internet ever. And that's correct. That's true. That's classes on site, that's face-to-face contact and customer service, you know, someone standing in front of somebody else. I don't see that ever changing in our lifetimes. In the same way that quilt market provides value for you as a company to meet in a B2B setting face-to-face, quilt shops provide value to the consumer to meet in a B2C you know, situation face-to-face. Mm-hmm. Agreed. Agreed. That's a great. Okay, for sure. All right, cool. So let's um let's talk a little bit about your recommendations. Um, you guys both have some things to recommend. And Kathy, we're going to start with you. You mentioned these wonderful plane rides where you're sort of in this isolated situation, flying coast to coast, and have time to maybe peruse and read some things that would otherwise get 
crowded out and a busy life and you love to read on planes. So you had some books that you wanted to recommend. And the first is a book called What We See When We Read by Peter Mendelssohn. Right, right. That one and the other one I think was uh, You Are a Bad. It's called You Are a Badass, yeah, by Jen Sincero. <laughs> right, right. Which, frankly, I, I've given out many copies to girlfriends and kindred spirits. Um, I think it's great from a woman's perspective on getting out in the world and doing what you're going to do and what you're what you're good at and connecting. And the the other book that, that I don't have in front of me right now, as far as what you see, is. I'm always interested in how our separate minds perceive what we actually see and what we think we see and what we are really seeing and how we enter. Awesome. Those are two great book recommendations, neither of which I've read. So thank you very much for those. And Michael, I didn't give you as much time to prepare as I gave Kathy. So a little unfair putting you on the spot, but do you have something that you would recommend to a creative person out there? I, I do. It's it's definitely less cerebral. I think <laughs> that's okay. And then a little more high flying. But um, I, I would tell somebody, especially somebody starting out, to to go to a bookstore, to spend some time in the crafting section, and just to pick pick a craft that looks interesting and buy it. Buy the book, dive in, and if they feel like they need more instruction, they should sign up for a class. Uh, they can you know learn all sorts of tricks meet other crafty people. And then if that's difficult to access, YouTube videos are another option for, for somebody looking, looking to get into craft. Yeah, for sure. That's a good path. And I love, by the way, just to go to Barnes and Noble and I sit and pull all the craft books and I often will pull all the books by the same publisher before I'd written books, I didn't know anything about publishers. And so it's very interesting to see if you search by publisher, you know, sort of see what their their oeuvre looks like um, and how it differs from a different publisher. Anyway, that's really interesting to do. And also just to read the, um, the parts written by the author in the back where the author kind of thanks people. <laughs> and you can hear how they thank their editor and sort of a little bit glimpses of the experience that they had in writing those books. So I love doing that. And it's something I, I do it probably once a month. It gives you a really good insight into craft publishing. Yeah, that yeah. is great insight. Great. I recommend doing that too. Right. <laughs> so Kathy and Michael, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the Walsh and Apps podcast. I really enjoyed talking with you. Thanks a lot, Abby. Abby, this was really fun. Yeah. Thank you. Okay, awesome. And you've been listening to the Walshing Apps podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. Visit my blog, walshingapps.com, where you can sign up for my email newsletter to get the best in sewing and blogging and small business delivered right to your inbox each week. Today's episode was sponsored by Cashmere Patterns. Did you know that the average woman wears a size 16 and a DD bra? but that most sewing patterns stop at a 14 and are drafted for a B cup? That's why Jenny Rushmore launched Cashmere Patterns, the first sewing patterns designed for curves. Cashmere Patterns come in sizes 12 through 28 and cup sizes from C through H. And there are a range of modern patterns from the ultimate wrap dress to a button-down shirt that doesn't gape at the bust. Use code WALSHENAPS, that's all caps, WALSHENAPS, at shop.cashmeret.com to get 20% off your first order before July 1st, 2017. Thank you so much, Cashmeret Patterns. And if you enjoy the show, tell a friend about it. 
Thank you so much. And I'll see you next time.